0: love deeper. Love deeper. I love that. Where does that come from? Came from right now, man. No one's ever asked me that. (laughs) I would just think that all of my, you know, love is by far the most powerful antidepressant that I've seen being loved, giving love, caring for each other, being connected. That in my opinion is what the human brain was made to do. I think we all worked on that everybody worked on it you know if you have good connections can how can you improve them how can you pass something on if we were like frenzied about that like we're frenzied about so many of our other goals right how badly we want to i don't know achieve wealth or attention or you know something material things i don't know i just think first yeah I would think that, you know, you asked me what, what uh, the goals are, what success looks like. And I think my answer revolved around something about being in that creative, expansive state and being in a state of giving and receiving love. Right. So I guess that's where that comes from, my notion. Love of- Deeper. I love that. Born in 92, on the block with the shark. Come from a different cloth, y'all would get ripped apart You want a diamond, then you gotta get it in the dark We dropping nuggets like Carmelo with the paw Now we eating from state to state, we scrape the plate I put my eggs in the basket, took a leap of faith I took a chance, now we grow and see the impact
1: Decoding success with special guests, now let's bring Matt Welcome to the show, episode number 251, right here on the top 1% globally ranked podcast, Decoding Success. You're rocking with your host, Matt Labrie. And no, the title of this episode is not just some marketing gimmick. It's literally what we're talking about today because it is possible. It is possible to beat depression and anxiety with what we eat, how we fuel ourselves, our nutrition. There's no one better to have a conversation about this with other than our friend that's joining us today. Super excited for our friend, Dr. Drew Ramsey, Psychiatrist author, and farmer, his work focuses on clinical excellence, nutritional interventions, and creative media, an assistant clinical professor of psychiatry at Columbia, and has an active telemedicine clinical practice based in NYC. As you can imagine, his work has been featured all over the place. New York Times, Wall Street Journal, The Today Show, BBC, NPR, top of all of that, he's not only done one, not two, but three TEDx talks. Now, his books, Eat to Beat Depression and Anxiety, Eat Complete, Fifty Shades of Kale, and The Happiness Diet all explore the connection between mental health and nutrition. And that is exactly what we're diving into here today. Super excited to have each and every one of you rocking with us on episode number 251. So I'm going to say this before I dive into some of my favorite points in this episode. Make sure you're sharing this. There's a lot of people in this world that experience depressed times, that experience anxiety, There are ways to combat this very simply by just focusing on what it is that we're eating and what we're consuming. We're diving into the entire list. It's so, so important. So I want to make sure and urge you to share this with the people in your life. If you don't think this is for you, if you think it's for someone else, make sure that you're sharing it with them. Shoot it over to them via text. Shoot it over on social. Share it on social. Whatever you got to do. We really appreciate that. But this conversation gets deep. Two men talking about mental health, talking about therapy, talking about do your dreams have meaning? Do they? Something we're diving into, right? Having empathy for those that are willing to do the work on themselves and are going through the process of putting themselves in therapy and empathy for the people that don't want to do therapy, right? Because there's two sides to that coin. Also, I asked Dr. Drew what his biggest takeaways are from him being in therapy. The list goes on. We're diving into so much. I'm really, really excited to have you. Again, going to urge you to share this. You're rocking with us on episode number 251. Without further ado, we bring to you our friend, Dr. Drew Ramsey. Dr. Drew, welcome to Decoding Success. I have been following your work for some time, TED Talks, books, all of this good stuff for quite some time. Really excited to have you and amplify your message here today. So thank you so much for joining us.
0: Matt, thanks for having me about the real, I don't know, it's really nice to hear, nice way to start. I appreciate that. It's it's great to be with you and it's always fun. You're sitting there writing this stuff and thinking about this stuff by yourself initially. And so it's nice to now have a community and uh, hear about all the folks who've been cheering. So thank you. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. I mean, let's start with your TED talk. I think that was one of the best. I'm getting the chill sayings. I, I have goosebumps. I don't know if you could see that. One of the best TED talks I've ever watched. I think super informative, super engaging, you know, the whole couch, like you even hopped up on the couch at one point. Like it was a really awesome TED talk. What made you want to do that
0: and put that message out there? We just have to change how we think about mental health. I know I've had to change how I think about mental health. I think we all can agree. There's a lot that we're doing better than we ever have before. We have a more open conversation. We're two men. We just talk. We said the word mental health, right? <laughs> so that, there's progress in lots of areas. I don't want to diminish that or, or, or throw shade on all of that. We all can agree. It's just not, people don't have access to care, right? The care that we do sometimes access to medications and psychotherapy that, you know, for a lot of people that's how not there. Their language, with their culture, how they imagine going about it. So that TED talk also, I wanted to get it right. That was a third one I'd give in uh, the TEDx talks. And, and you get so nervous doing those. And I've been talking about food and mental health for a while, but I think within food, there's a bigger message for us about the empowerment that we all need to really prioritize taking care of our neurons and our mental health is like the number one goal in our health. Nothing else matters if you don't have mental health.
1: Absolutely. How should we view
0: mental health,
1: right? You know, we're, we're talking about how the landscape has shifted to men having this type of conversation right now, which
0: is a, a huge win. Like, how should we view mental health? A dynamic, ever-changing, evolving, something that we work on every day, something that we learn so much about all of us at different phases of our lives. I think we should think about mental health, it, not just as like, what happens when we don't have mental illness. Like, we, we really want to think about that as a state of functioning right, when we are connecting with ourselves or per- our community, our partners. And then we've increasingly been using this phrase, mental fitness. We have a, a whole new course, Healing the Modern Brain, which is really around for all of us to achieve our optimal mental health. And that's different for everybody in different phases of our lives. What do we do? And I think that's just, as I said, it was, I stayed on the back of that couch in, front, in Charlottesville in front of a bunch of eighth graders in the audience. So it was, sort of, it was a fun, a beautiful theater, all these TEDx talks, usually in some kind of fascinating theater with all this history. You know, I kind of said, you know, like we're going to build our physical health. We all know we all have goals, right? There's whole magazines dedicated to it. Like we, it's hard for us sometimes even to define mental health. Absolutely. Like, what is that? What function is that? And what do you do to build it? We talk about we want deeper relationships and better connections. Like, okay, yeah. What do you do? How do you do that? And you know, what do you yeah. do on a Wednesday night? And that just is a clinician and a psychiatrist and a person that's just, I don't know, it's been... My brain has been revolving around that for a while now. Just how do I do that in my own life and and how do I help my patients do more of that? And then increasingly, how does the evidence tell us particularly around nutrition? Like, Hey, there are things we should be doing for our mental health.
1: Absolutely. I want to dive into the nutrition side of things in just a little bit. I'm just curious when it comes to the mental fitness, I mean, fitness, when I think about fitness, I think of reps to build up to something, right? Like Uh you're not going to walk into the gym and just have massive biceps or massive (laughs) quads or whatever, right? So what does mental fitness actually Tell What are the exercises that can be done? What are, I actually just got something recently. I've been trying out a wearable, a wearable technology to decrease stress and things like that. I'm just curious from your perspective, like what, does mental fitness actually entail?
0: So there are, for me, really nine pillars of mental fitness. We can talk about a few of them. And a lot of okay. them are, are you know, aspects that, that people know about, eh? you know, thinking about sleep hygiene, but really moving beyond uh, what, what a lot of us do or say, right? Either we make a joke about how, you know, we stay up too late watching TV, or we say what a lot of patients would say when I evaluate, hey, you know, I try and get like eight hours, doc. seven, eight hours. That's what I would say. Then I started tracking my sleep every night. I have a year of data. It's not a true statement for almost Mm -hmm. anybody. Most people are getting more like five to six hours of sleep. Most people are doing not eight sleep or not four sleep cycles, but three. Does that matter? You know, began to matter to me as a brain health guy a lot when a whole new system in our brain got discovered. It's the system you'd think we'd know a lot more about. It's the system that deals with brain waste, called the Mm -hmm. glymphatic system. It's most active at night. You kind of, you know, it's not like I'm a, some of this is very straightforward and simple, but when you think about your mental fitness, your ability to be your best self, achieve things maybe you never imagined. I, you know, I never, I would say writing was, I liked to write, but I don't know. I never thought I'd write a book. Like a lot of people write books, you know? That requires a mental fitness. I, this happened during the pandemic. I signed this book contract, viral pandemic hit. I went from, you know, split my time between Manhattan and rural Indiana to living in rural Indiana with my parents mm. and having to write this book about depression and anxiety when everybody I knew, myself included, was struggling with insomnia, depression, and anxiety and, and what felt like the end of normalcy. And so there was something about mental fitness that I had to learn about and find. And so- yeah. Mental fitness also has aspects that I think are very important that we don't know how to focus on often. It's where psychotherapy is helpful for a lot of people. How do you deepen connections? How do you gain a better understanding of the self? Why are you late all the time? Why are you upset? Why do you react to people in the workplace that way? So so, uh, uh, having awareness of ourselves, our emotions, our character, getting better with that, working on, you know, the the very important aspects I think of mental fitness, you know, who are the people that we look to that we really think that is a human being who's just, you know, functioning at the highest level. What are they doing? They're usually creating, right? They're creating love, they're creating connection, they're creating inspiration. And so really try and not in an oppressive way, right? That our lives are filled with all these things we have to do. So we get mental fitness, but in a hopefully very organic way, right? After we talk, I'm, I'm going to head out on my bike out into the deep wilderness. Cause I've been sitting here in the zoom world and the best part of it and out in the grand unconscious, my patients thinking, and it's, Wonderful, but it's also I know I've got a I got to get out. If I don't get out, I know tomorrow I'm not. I'm just not going to be as fit.
1: Absolutely, I, mean. I love that, and I appreciate you sharing that vulnerably. You mentioned therapy, and we're we're recording this during what I think is Men's Mental Health Month. I think that's what June is. I'm going to ask a question because I have. I'm personally in therapy. Numerous. I've done numerous different forms of therapy. I love it. It changed my life drastically. Oh man, I'm glad um, we can have a
0: good conversation. As two men who have done a lot of therapy, I like that. Exactly. Exactly. Welcome to 2022.
1: Exactly. I'm just really curious what your advice is. Now, I have people around me that are on two different sides of the spectrum. I have a friend, one of my best friends. He actually just said to me yesterday when I called him, he said, I just got off my second therapy call and I loved it. I'm just so proud of that friend for making that start, taking that step. It really, really made me happy. And then I have another friend, someone that I can tell and by no means am I qualified from an educational perspective to make this assumption or a diagnosis or anything, but I know he needs to talk to someone.
0: Like I just don't need a degree. You don't need a degree to know that, right? Everybody listening, you can think of who that friend is that doesn't think they need therapy that you just know it would open up something, help them out in some massive way.
1: Yeah. My question to you is what's your advice, maybe from a friend perspective, maybe from a relationship perspective, maybe it's, you know, your girlfriend, your boyfriend, whomever, you know, they need help, but they just won't go get that help. Is there anything that you
0: can do? Well, I think for all of us, one of the pieces of mental fitness and you know, mental health that's challenging as humans and all of us have to work like a muscle is our power of empathy, of how to create boundaries around that, how to have it truly. I mean, it's really hard for all of us to, no matter how woke you are, to sit with bias, what that means, how that gets into you, where that sits in your unconscious. So I think having empathy for what people have struggled with and all of the many reasons we don't want to talk about it. And we act like somehow that doesn't make sense. It makes it makes lots of sense. That's what that's how our psyche, in some ways, is psychologically, you know, works by having a set of you know psychological defensives that protect us. Right. now we're having to use the defense of you know, in some ways compartmentalization. There are certain things happening in the world that we're not going to think about. We're going to have a good and positive dog. Right. Well, that you know requires hires that capacity of us to put things in their place. So anyway, so having empathy for why people don't want to get into therapy. I think if it's somebody where you know you also care about you want to understand some of the barriers. You know, I'm a white, blue eyed guy, so it's easy for me to find a therapist that looks like me, has my, maybe some aspect of my, I identify with. That's, you know, for anybody from the BIPOC community, that is not, that is not as easy. I'd also, therapy can be quite expensive or it's time limited. You know, I, I'm within the mental health field. It's expected it's part of my job. If you're in some other field that like you're a police officer, how to go get mental health help and really be open about the fact that you're depressed and maybe every now and then suicidal, or you drink too much, which is a lot of people in law enforcement, you know, having those kind of ideas. You can't go talk about that because it's going to threaten your job. So there are lots of, you know, if you will going to apply for life insurance, you don't want to go and be super open. So there are lots of barriers. I think understanding those and then trying not to be annoying as you model some of your own benefits as you walk the talk, you know, where we want to say, if you have a breakthrough in therapy, that's a friend to share it with. Man, I had a breakthrough in therapy. You know, that thing you told me about how I'm this way or that way. I was talking to my therapist about that, Right, where you right. kind of share with process. Like lots of people tell me, you know, they don't believe in dreams that the dreams have meaning or dreams just like, oh, I was watching that show. So that guy showed up when you sit with dreams over and over again, you know, or you have this, you know, wonderful, I don't know, sense that they do over time have meaning to us, create some narrative To us, but you know, if you've never had that experience, never had anybody sit with your dream to talk about it or be interested in them, you know, it's easy to dismiss them. I think also the common myths of therapy that it lasts forever, that it doesn't work, that therapists don't say anything, that there's no structure, technique. You know, I mean, those things all certainly happen in therapies, but I try to challenge those and remind people, I'm not like some wizard. You know I sit here, I've listened a lot, but it's it's I'm a person who's been in this forest and wants to help, but it shouldn't be a mystery. You need more of this or that? Ask for it. Hey, I have a patient you know a lot of people who' you know helped me be a better therapist by telling me like, you know this is, you're doing this or you're doing that, or I really need more of this in this session from you. And, right. and so those would be, that was a long-winded answer, Matt, but I think being encouraging, understanding there are lots of gaps, having empathy, and, and then demonstrating how it's helpful to you.
1: Absolutely. I love that. Now, I'm curious, you talked about dreams having meaning. Do you think they have meaning?
0: Yeah, I do. I, I'm a psychodynamic psychiatrist, which means right. a way saying, I believe in the unconscious and I believe, you know, dreams have meaning. Like when you go to an art museum, it has meaning. Like when you go out on a date and you feel that magic and you're falling in love, all Kinds of things take on meaning in that moment, the thing you're eating, the restaurant, the date, right? The reason dreams have meaning is because of the way that the human mind creates images and stories and consciousness. And and so to to deny that, it's like saying, I don't know, it's like saying that language doesn't have meaning or that music doesn't have feeling. It's like, I don't know, it's the brain doing something. We should, in my opinion, like bow down in worship of it and the, you know, try and glean the messages. But you know, that's how I'm oriented, I guess.
1: No, I definitely get it. And I love that. That. I mean, I, I have dreams sometimes, and I kept a dream journal every now and then. I was never consistent with it because I wake up 15 minutes later, I don't remember the dream. So if I don't get to that dream journal right away, I'm you know it's gone, it's it's dead and gone. But yeah, I appreciate you sharing that because I think it's a really beautiful thing, especially when you see people popping up in your dreams that you haven't talked to in a while. And then next thing you know, you hear from them or you see them what, in the street. It's what like, is that?
0: What is yeah. that? I had a wild one happen, I had a, a patient I've been with a long time and And been with them as as they, you know, ended a relationship, gotten into a new relationship, gotten married. And I am walking. I was in New York randomly one day in the middle of the pandemic, I'm walking down the street and I hear Dr. Ramsey and I look up and it's a woman. I don't, you know, I I kind of vaguely recognize I'm not great at that on the side. And it's this, this person's wife Mm. and like, and and it's like, what, I mean, what is that? I mean, how is that even possible? Right. And if you, if you tried to plan that, Hey, I'm going to meet you at this street corner. I've never seen you. You couldn't plan it. Like, what, what are those little moments in our lives? I mean, it's kind of wonderful. I think those are things that we all, as humans, intuitively love, get sort yeah. of a kick out of.
1: Absolutely. So when I see or when I have moments like that, I take that as the universe telling me I'm exactly where I need to be. That's that's my do with it. yeah, that's that's my way of interpreting it. And another thing that I do if I'm looking at the clock, now right now it says 234 p.m. But if I look at the clock and I see a synchronicity where it says two 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 or one one one, I always take that as moments of just the universe saying, Hey Matt, like you're where you need to be, bro. Like this this is right where you need to be. You need to be talking to Dr. Drew right now, you know? But that's how I interpret it at least.
0: Well, it's also a way that you're using signals from the environment and from your user, your universe to to help you feel secure. Mm. And I think it's a very important thing to do. You know, some people say, oh, you know, we're reading too much into things, but you know, making meaning of things, having things have emotional resonance is a, is a really, in some ways, aspect of that mental fitness, right? It's easy to live a life where we're not not easy, but it happens often where we can live a life where we're really not engaged with our emotional self. I would say definitely the best, one of the best assets or best attributes that everyone's carrying around with them. And, and that's often because our emotional systems have really been you know, neglected, abused, and traumatized in all kinds of different ways. I don't know if you've heard this in the sort of mental health world. There's this way trauma is like little T and big T. Yeah. I mean, I appreciate where that comes from. And I think it's to help people who've had nonviolent traumas, you know, feel an opportunity that that is legitimate trauma. For me, it's just, I mean, I see traumas all the time that no one, no one would really consider, but you know, being raised by, I don't know, an inattentive parent who really just doesn't really, you know, vibe with you for whatever reason, never abuses you. But there's a way that's incredibly at a traumatic, not in the way that you have PTSD, but in the way of how you end up then thinking about human relations and attachment.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I'm actually reading John Bradshaw's book, Homecoming right now, all about healing the inner child. So I actually want to touch on that real quick. How do you know? I mean, our audience is primarily millennials that perform at high levels. They want the most out of every bucket of life, relationships, business, career, finances, health, mental health, emotional, spiritual health, all of that. How do we know if our inner child's wounded?
0: Well, that's a great question. I think that there are wounds that, and I'd probably put that a little bit in quotes, but I would say there are wounds or challenges I think that we all inherently face through development. So I think there are certainly people who've had wounded childhoods. I think, you know, one way that you know if things have happened to you, you know, a lot of people have had, you know, from vague inappropriateness to frank violations of uh, friends, relative family members, whether that just discomfort or, you know, frank sort of touching and abuse. I think that when people don't have a sense of security now if you live in like a school bus with your parents and you guys are all like playing the ukulele together and you feel a sense of security and identity now that that's a wonderful it's a wonderful way to then, you know, understand the challenges you have is, you know, being those inherent human challenges as right. opposed to really specific challenges you have because of development. You know, as opposed, you can imagine that same scenario, you know, where you're, I don't know, folks are out on a, some sort of mission that doesn't really relate to you and you're being drugged along, or you can imagine all kinds of scenarios where people don't feel secure. So I think sense of security is one, or whether that's, you know, around things like food, nutrition, future. I think if you have a parent that is, was struggling at some way, you know, you can, but I think we have lots of empathy for that and understand it, but at some point realizing the implications of that for you, you know, that uh, Frank, Frank is sort of dependence and addiction, or, or does somebody have an unhealthy relationship? I think one way to, to think about wounds is also how you respond. How do you respond as is, is a relationship to ask you to be more vulnerable and more trusting? How do you respond as professional work asks more of you? How do you respond to criticism? These are all things that, you know, does not mean you have a wounded child? Uh, maybe, but it sort of speaks to their parts of you that I had this great first boss, this old Italian psychiatrist, Pell Sardine. Pell talked about, you know, I got to grow, he'd say, I got to help that one grow up a little bit. And at first I thought it was kind of like insulting, but he meant it in the most empathic way that like all of us have things that regress or didn't get mm-hmm. matured or, or never got challenged until we were in our forties or fifties that it all of a sudden needs to come online. So I hope that answers the question. Then.
1: It definitely does. It definitely does. I appreciate it. I'm curious. I know that you said that you mentioned that, you know, you've done your own therapy. I'm curious to learn if you're willing and able to share this. What do you feel like was your personal biggest breakthrough, if you don't mind?
0: Well, I'm definitely, I'm willing and and able. It's a new, it's a new aspect of the mental health landscape. You know, that when I was in training at Columbia and in residency, you know, it was a big debate of whether we should text with patients or whether patients could have our cell phones or not. And, you know, this really, this kind of notion of what do we disclose? And I think it's been a huge barrier in mental health. So so a lot of, you know, most people who are mental health clinicians have had significant amounts of treatment. It's not something that outside of the field, I think, is known or talked about. I think a lot of patients who see me assume that, you know, the reason I'm a psychiatrist is I'm so mentally healthy you know in some ways that's true but it didn't come out of nowhere so you know it's really a biggest breakthrough i don't think is possible cuz for me you know one of the things that does not have hack is psychotherapy. And I see this often where people are claiming, you know, in a session, they're going to do this or that for you. And I just think that's such a, there's anybody in those theaters or on those feeds shocks me. It shocks me that anybody thinks that the human condition is that simple. There are a lot of breakthroughs that I've had. Probably one for me is that I've needed therapy. That if, I, if I'm if i not kind of processing my life with a paid professional, you know, I, I do okay. But something really for me begins to kind of grate and in a way that I just call it process. I'm just very process oriented. Things happen to me and I like to sort of get curious about it. I like to sort it out. I've had a really, I would say understanding a lot about success And how to handle that, have a self-esteem, I think those are probably big breakthroughs for me or sort of things that um, I spent a lot of time working on. And then I would say there's something about intimacy. I mean, the biggest breakthrough for me probably has been around understanding boundaries and intimacy Mm -hmm. and not boundaries like relationships around, you know, not, not being able to stay in a relationship, but more of how some aspects of being close or when people are really open doesn't actually create intimacy. Right. Um, that's a yeah. That's I could keep going on and on here, but I, uh, you know, but but I think the bottom line Matt, that you know, if this is about success and decoding success, if you're trying to decode Drew Ramsey's success, I can tell you there are a few very simple ingredients. I have a really wonderful and loving partner for the last, you know, uh, twenty plus years. I've had fair amounts of physical health, so I've been able to always engage in physical activity, find a lot of pleasure in that, and truly really help. Like I live in a mountain town, I spend a lot of time on the mountain in the winter, and that's because winters are really hard time for me. But if I'm outside, if I'm outside pushing myself, if I'm in the elements, if it's, you know, negative 10 in a storm, ah, that really gets me jazzed up. The snow gets me really, there's something lifts my spirit about it. So, But psychotherapy has certainly been part of my success starting, in, starting when I was in medical school, actually. And then when I was in residency, started a formal psychoanalysis sort of three or four times a week on the couch by a relational psychoanalyst, so was sort of as the... Freudian kind of ideas of psychoanalysis emerge and become, I would say, kind of less straight white male and focused on like fucking and violence and more focused on connection. And I don't know. I just, I found those ideas to be very helpful clinically, but also personally. And then I took, did a long course of treatment, had some time off, had our daughter and then just, you know, having kids brings things up for us all about who you are, your values, your, your mortality. It's, it's a very, there's a jarring part of parenthood. No one talks about it. like, just as you were loving that little curly haired guy. And like, <laughs> and now you've got a three-year-old, like no curly hair. And just in and it's, it, it's all um so much happens. It's really rich, but so then got back into regular psychotherapy and been in there and just had a, what was it there? Just had a, had a session yesterday. So
1: there we go. I love that. Yeah. I'm in the same boat. I I mean, it's drastically changed my life. So I was just curious what your breakthroughs were there. And I appreciate the vulnerability and transparency. I am curious. So you talked about success. How are you personally defining success?
0: Well, that's great. I would say right now I I define success as being able to maintain a sense of security and freedom in some way. I would say for me right now, over the past year, I've been in a lot of transitions. For me, uh, success has been pretty straightforward and simple, which is about maintaining everyone's mental health. Just, you know, anytime. Someone's in a move or a transition, right? That's a time when we're all very vulnerable in our mental health. We have a lot of expectations, a lot of the systems that we create when we're settled into places, whether it's, I don't know, your favorite coffee shop or that restaurant you like to go or that movie theater or whatever it is, your gym, all that stuff is assembled pretty carefully by us. And so for me, yeah, success, those things recently. I would say I define success for me as being able to recurrently be in the expansive creative loving part of my brain. That to me is success. I and you know I don't think of going can be there. Some people can be there a lot more than I can, but when I'm when I'm in that spot, that success, when I'm in that spot, yeah, I mean it's Like success for me is around the dinner table when there's like a really simple, awesome home-cooked meal and I've had a great day of work and and we're together and there's like this rich, spontaneous process going on. Like success, success is like when I'm in the minivan and we're like singing along to some silly song, right? I mean, like I never thought that like, it, you know, I'd be like a middle-aged guy with a minivan singing Taylor Swift. But let me tell you, like <laughs> you get that right. It feels like success, like nothing else. So yeah, I think success right now for me, um, I'm in the fifties next is trying to keep like spontaneity and excitement and intimacy with my partner and having a lot of, uh, just a lot of fun with that, you know, just sort of, so those oh, are, and then dad, dadding, sorry. Sorry, it's a long thing, but success, you know, I got a lot of crazy And then the parenting, that's super, you know, there's nothing, it, for me, when I like I won't say I judge people, but when I, I'm sort of looking at someone, I'm thinking about success, you know, the idea that people can come to process and understand the essence of like where they're from, who they are, and then really engage in parenting in a way that transcends some of those challenges that we've all I that, yeah, working on that. Hashtag working on it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious. I know you've been on podcasts before,
1: I've seen you all over the place. What's a question you wish more people would ask you?
0: I don't know, I don't really thought about it. I don't I don't know. That's a good question. You know, I find that the podcast there's you know there's certainly a lot of questions about the book. They're not uh, these kind of questions where people ask me about like psychotherapy and dreams and my mental health. I wouldn't say like I wish for that. It's been so I, I don't know. I, I I don't go into it like that, Matt. I have to tell you, I, I kind of just I go into it just sort of um at this point just pretty much curious where the conversation's going to go. Right. So I'll try and think about that if
1: yeah uh, no no worries. I'm not putting any pressure. I'm just asking. You know, I, I like to ask well, that question. the
0: biggest lesson? psychotherapy probably sounds like something like it's not about you. <laughs> and so I think that just, yeah, for me, the psychotherapy has really been, you know, it probably revolves around some aspects of that. i really trying, working on really being more other directed. Yeah. So I don't know. So it's hard for me to think about questions I wish people would ask me.
1: I totally get that. I totally get it. Let it let's talk about the book. I mean, I'm going to make the book title the same title as this episode, Eat to Beat Anxiety and Depression. I mean, hearing that is incredible. Is it possible?
0: That's my first question. How is it possible? I should say. It's possible in lots of ways. First of all, everyone who has depression is eating while still has depression or someone, if you get depression, it doesn't necessarily mean you're just eating badly. I don't think this is the silver bullet for depression. And some people make this field nutritional psychiatry out to be that way. So I just want to put that disclaimer out there. I do think there are ways to definitely eat that one in the research, reduce the risk of a population getting depression. So if you look at college students, if we swapped out every single cafeteria in America and made it more a Mediterranean style diet and the kids ate it, the risk of depression per number of studies would drop by between 18 to about 40 slash 50%. Wow. A pretty drastic drop. Why is that? You know, the new way we think about these illnesses, sure, it has something to do with serotonin, but I think we think much more around notions of um, things like inflammation, things like the microbiome, uh, the idea of neuroplasticity—that your brain continues to grow and evolve—and thinking about how, you know, how diets involve uh, that, right? And then I would say the other way is just look—you have a human brain. Everyone listening has one. It's like the best collection ever of cells in the universe that we know. But maybe the whale brain's cool. But let's just say brains in general—it's right? pretty cool. Like to make human consciousness. I don't know. It's amazing. Yeah. You want to like feed that Cheetos all day? Uh, Oh, yeah, I know. I get it. If that was like the Ferrari in your garage, you go out there and be like, guys, let's put out the dining room table on top of my Ferrari hood, you know, or (laughs) let's, uh, let's fill up the tank. You guys, let's, I'm curious what happens. Why don't we put some soil land in here? See if it runs. I just don't think you'd treat it that way. You'd be really careful. You'd call the expert, right? And say, hey made this funny noise yesterday. And so kind of we don't really treat our mental health like that. We don't really take, treat our brain health like that. So simple ways that people can improve their mood and decrease anxiety. If folks have gone to exclusively plant-based diets, everybody got the news about vitamin B12. It's only found in animal foods for the most part. So in fortified foods. But in the UK, Epic Oxford study found that it's like around 70% of male vegans had B12 deficiency deficiency or insufficiency, which puts them at, you know, if deficiency, you're just frankly going to get depressed. So those are examples. There's some kind of classic vitamins and minerals. You don't get enough of them. You get depressed. Then the way that I think food probably works most effectively is that if you're eating a lot of the brain foods I recommend, and not just me, that nutritional psychiatry recommend, you're looking at things that a lot of people don't consider. Right, we're so focused on meat or, or not meat or protein or carbs or sugar and how evil it is. The Most important thing for people to hear on this podcast is fermented foods in terms of the data and really wanting to like shift your health. I mean, wow, you have like more genes in your gut than you do, right? Sitting here looking at Matt, Matt's 27,000 genes. Now, like when we think about his gut, there's 2 million genes in his gut. So it's a really interesting way of orienting our eating. You know, a simple question, can you eat to beat depression and anxiety? Per the data, there are now five randomized controlled trials, which is our gold standard of medicine. They're not huge. The first one had 67 patients in it. They all had depression. Half of them got a Mediterranean diet given to them over cell, seven nutritional counseling sessions. What happened? 33% of them went into full remission of their depression. If that wow. was a medicine, it would be a multi-billion dollar drug. It would be on all of in, in all of the journals and all the headlines because you get a third of people out completely out of depression, when they're already in some treatment, that's pretty amazing. That was then followed up by a second study. 152 people looked at a cooking class, a Mediterranean style cooking class, found that they were able over three months to drastically drop depression scores in extremely depressed. You know, these, these are patients who are basically ranking as high as you could in depression, which, which to me was an interesting part of that study because often we think, oh, you know, like food interventions, exercise, that's for people you are going to get like a little mood problem. It's not for people with like real mental health problems. And that's really not true. You want to, Encourage people when they're having symptoms to engage with nutrition, movement, sleep hygiene. Those are are two of the studies that suggest, yes, if you have clinical depression and adopt a Mediterranean style diet, which for most people is more olive oil, more plants, more nuts and seeds, more seafood, more fermented foods, I'd I'd throw in there. That is going to make the recovery from depression better and prevent or help prevent future episodes. And that, and I wouldn't say that's surprising to anybody. Right. People listening, like imagine you're in my shoes. Somebody comes to you, they have depression. Maybe you're gonna start an antidepressant, some therapy, and they're just eating fast food every day. They're emotional eating at night, they're just like eating all the carbs in the house and they wake up feeling horrible and it's all coffee, all coffee until eventually the day's over, so they can start drinking. Mm. Standard American diet, right? Couple beers, bunch of empty carbs. You know, if you're in my shoes, is that gonna help somebody really beat depression and anxiety? So, some of this is new. Some, yeah, some of this is new science. Some of this is applying the common sense that, you know, we need in a lot of fields of medicine. Sure.
1: Yeah. I'm curious to learn. I mean, listen, I just had pizza right before this call. I'm curious how much is something like, you know, having a slice or two of pizza? I'm based in New York City. I mean, you know, Uh, how much does that impact mental health?
0: Well, it probably illustrates a great point. One of the central tenets, we've got a new video blog up called the, it's about the pillars of nutritional psychiatry, right? What are the most important foundational principles? And one of them is nutrient density. So if that nice slice of cheese pizza, right, you know, in New York, I love that. First of all, there's the non-nutritional psychological meaning of that. When I go to New York, I get a slice. Why? I trained in New York. I lived in New York for 20 years. I love that New York slice. But, you know, there's not a lot of nutrition in that. There are calories, but you're not getting all of these vitamins and minerals. And in the antidepressant food scale, which is a paper people can Google antidepressant foods in the Journal of World Psychiatry that we published, we asked the literature really, what are the 12 nutrients most involved in depression? What are the nutrients? We found there are 12. And so nutrient density is saying what foods have the most of these nutrients that are important for our mental health and our brain per calorie. You know, and pizza doesn't make the list. Now, if there's basil on that pizza, that that makes the list, you know, herbs, leafy greens, and you're looking at, you know, those are as a food category, some of the most nutrient dense plants. It's funny, there's a lot of Backlash against healthy food these days, right? People saying beans are filled with anti-nutrients and kale's filled with this or that. It's really profound misinformation. It's really been fascinating to watch a kind of, you know, what to me feels kind of very simple and straightforward and kind of clear in the data. Eating more, eating only plants is not great. Eating more plants is super important for everybody. Somehow this has gotten really controversial. I feel like I'm going on and on about like, can you actually eat to beat depression and anxiety? I think the answer for me, yeah. In terms of that pizza, yeah. so tonight you go home and eat wild salmon and an arugula salad. And, you know, and next time you have pizza, I don't know, like I've got a pizza stone for my grill. I hope someday I'll make some cool, like interesting gluten-free crust or whatever. It's like right. a little gluten-sensitive. <laughs> but I went to the grocery store and got a big crust I've never made pizza before. Now, what am I going to put on there? Well, I'm going to try and put, you know, what you guess, some veggies. I'm going to probably get some anchovies. I'm going to make like a little vinaigrette thing. I'm going to have fun. And I'm gonna, again, try and increase the nutrient density so we're not just getting Mm-hmm. kind of dough and cheese and tomato sugar, basically. But we're building in more minerals, vitamins and phytonutrients. And if you look at all the recipes, like the, the e-complete, the last book I did uh, before Eat to Beat Depression and Anxiety, it looks at 21 nutrients, asks what that are most important for mental health, asks what foods have the most of them, and then builds 100 recipes out of those foods. And, and so there's a rocket pie in that book, which is a pizza. But instead of you know, a traditional pie, it's it's got a nice crust, but then it has a kind of pesto smear, sort of garlic, kale, pesto with lots of baby clams chopped up and covered in microgreens. So, you know, a slice of this pizza has like 240% of your daily need of vitamin B12. Wow. So it kind of illustrates nutrient density. Now, do I think, you you know, should you always have clam pizza? No, because there's so many other wonderful pizzas out there. So you, but pizza is probably one of those great examples. Another one's a taco. You talk about brain food waiting to happen, man. The taco is such a, you can take a good corn tortilla, put some black beans in there, Drop in some salsa, right? You're you're just loading up with plants, phytonutrients. It's such an amazing, great brain food delivery device. But you know, a lot of tacos are not so nutrient dense. So absolutely. Now I'm curious when it comes
1: to the personalized way about approaching this from a nutritional dietary perspective. I actually just did an at-home test, blood and stool sample, and I sent it off to a company and they sent me back prebiotic, probiotic, and multivitamins, all based on what they found I was missing. And in the process of all of that, it's actually an application. And on the app, they actually show you what are your superfoods? What are foods you should avoid? What are foods that you need to minimize? What are foods you're always good to have? What's your take there? Not everyone has access to stuff like that. I understand. But for instance, you mentioned arugula. I oh. actually, according to this, have to stay far away from arugula. Oh, why is that? I can tell you the exact reason if you want
0: to give yeah, me a second. I'd love, I'd, I'd love them to I'd love to. Understand why some corporation is telling you to avoid arugula based on your poo.
1: Yeah, I'll tell us. Let's see what it says. So there's a lot. I mean, anchovies is a superfood to me.
0: Maybe it tells you to avoid those. Maybe because they both start with an A, anchovies and arugula.
1: Let me, let's see if this loads Sorry up. Sorry to be dripping
0: you. with sarcasm. My <laughs> understanding of these platforms right now is that if you hold stock in them, you should short them because first of really? all, they're just BS. The idea okay. that I'm going to take your genes and tell you what to eat is garbage. The idea that you're going to have food sensitivity testing based on IgG antibodies is going to inform what you eat is garbage. The companies that promote these are garbage. They're dealing in fear. And if there's significant mm. data that shifts, I'm happy to be wrong with I would love to test your blood and be like, Jay, welcome to Dr. Drew Ramsey's super genetic nutritional psychiatry hut. Oh, no wonder right. you feel sad, bro. It's been the arugula. I heard you put it on your pizza. Take the arugula off your pizza. You're gonna be fine. Now, certainly people have food sensitivities. Certainly people have allergies. But the idea that your genes tell you to eat one leafy green versus the other, or that because of, you know, it, it's just a little, it's taking, it's an abuse of science because mm. it's taking ideas. It's like when people say you're going to have, you know, you're going to feel better because you have more serotonin in your brain. Or like when people say, you know, all the serotonin's in your gut. That's a true statement. It doesn't have a lot to do with mental health, to be honest. You know, all the serotonin is. Right. 95 is your gut. The 500,000 serotonin neurons in your brain, those are pretty interesting. They're, you know, they're separate and different population, but it's a way that like little stats like that, sorry to go on and on now, but this is just where I feel a lot of people are struggling and that they're looking to science like this to solve the problem when the, pro- the solution to the problem is, is pretty apparent right now for most folks. Mm-hmm.
1: No, I definitely get it. So it actually says arugula may contain nitrates that your microbiome can potentially change. Yeah, can potentially change into a more readily absorbed or harmful form. An analysis of your data indicates that avoiding foods with nitrates will be of extra benefit for you. Avoiding arugula may improve your ammonia
0: production pathway score.
1: So I really haven't ate it. I've had arugula a couple of times. I mean, I love arugula. I don't
0: think any of that you just read is true. You're not eating celery too?
1: It says not to eat celery. It says avoid celery. Of course
0: celery. not. Of course. Yeah, that's good. It says to avoid celery. It says... And, and nitric oxide, you know... Beets. Yeah, it tells me no beets. Oh, no beets. Because of your microbiome. But it's interesting that then they're sending you some formulated prebiotics, probiotics, I guess, that they say somehow are superior to you drinking some kefir or kefir, or- Yeah, this is the, it gives
1: me a, a whole list of things. It tells me whether it's, and I can't even pronounce half of these, L-plantarum, B-brevi, l rhamnosus, whatever yeah. all these things are. Maybe bacillus I shouldn't be putting them in my, bottom, <laughs> in my body.
0: Well, bacillus rhasmosis is a strain of organisms, and it, it's been a bit of a fantasy that a lot of people have had. If you talk to all of the top microbiome researchers, they say that this is not In any way related to the science of the microbiome, but it's that, you know, you can, we can identify that super strand, you're going to take it, and then you're going to not have as much depression because people who get depression have less of this thing. Mm. The problem is, it's not, you know, that's not, it's not what the science says. What the science tells us right now is that people should eat more fermented foods. Probiotics don't have data that they help. There, there's one study in mental health that's quite interesting of patients getting probiotics after being hospitalized for acute mania and people who are getting the probiotics doing much better than placebo. That's the only placebo-controlled trial I know that's been super positive. There's a little research in depression, but the bottom line is nobody's really ever shown that any supplements or probiotics... Beat eating a diet of whole foods and fermented foods.
1: Right, right. And
0: and I appreciate there are some barriers to that. We we created a new resource, Brain Food on a Budget, because so many people were concerned about cost. I'd encourage people to check out the wild salmon burgers in the in the most recent book, and so you can get a half pound of wild salmon at Walmart in a can for maybe three or four bucks usually, and enjoy a very delicious, inexpensive. Uh, high quality wild salmon, but yeah. So those companies are kind of mad, Matt, I guess you can sense that. And I don't want, like, I'm really all for the technological advancement. I just think that people are really being taken advantage of when it comes to mental health and when it comes to health by a very, very active and large marketing industry of supplementation. Yeah, I think it just, you know, I don't want to sound like an old (laughs) fuddy-duddy in the sense that like mental health takes work, but you know, that, that's what I believe. And I, and I, I just, you know, I just haven't seen compelling evidence. Nobody likes to talk about the fact that, you know, what are multivitamins really highly most, you know, what's the health effect or what's the high correlation you see if older people take vitamins are basically correlated with an increased risk of death, right, especially right. if they have copper and mm-hmm. it's just, you know, and every boy, you make me sound like an old cranky guy here. Let's, let's, <laughs> let's, let's move on from that. To, oh, well, I'm
1: uh, curious. What are some fermented foods? Now I know fermented as kombucha. But I there no longer you know. drink that because of caffeine.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, you know, I'd want to hear about that if you work as, you know, there are a lot of different teas. Kombucha is a fermented tea. So all okay. fermented products are basically bacteria eating up sugar and making secondary metabolites. And then you also get live bacteria. So in this little kombucha that I've got here, I, I drink a hopped kombucha is ones I really like. You know, you're getting 30, 40, 50 calories in 12 to 16 ounces, and you're getting you know, hundreds of millions of live bacteria, the kombucha, they say the three Ks, kombucha, kefir, and kimchi are the the three that people often know about. I think miso is another great one. Pickled vegetables, if there's just you know, one from the refrigerated section. Sourdough bread is an example of a fermented food. Dark chocolate's a fermented food. Doesn't have. Oh, I life. didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. That's what they do. After they take it, they take it out of the pot and they put it in these bins, they let it ferment and then dry it. I love that. No, I'm taking notes here. I mean, that that's good stuff. I didn't know that. And then think with chocolate, fermented foods, and eating more plants. What a lot of the studies show is initially. There can be some gassiness and some bloating and that fades after you know week, two and a half, week three. But, you know, we're all kind of impatient, right? We want to eat something and have an immediate effect and feel better. We want to make a dietary change and, you know, lose weight and feel happier and more energy in the next three or four days. It's one thing mental health has taught me is that real good changes, they often take a little time. They're not, you know, even if you do something radically like you, know, let's say you stop drinking. The real like benefits of that, the real cognitive mental health benefits, my experience, you, know, you really start feeling at month three, month nine, year one, like that's when it really takes hold. Actually, initially when people do things like that, they often feel a little worse. So there's um, and I think nutrition is like that, right? Where people feel they need a cheat day, or they feel if they eat dark chocolate, it's horrible, or you know, it's gotta be really regimented. And that's where I hope some of these ideas in nutritional psychiatry in the book about people focusing on nutrient density, people focusing on food categories, we say seafood, greens, nuts and beans, and a little dark chocolate. I'm sure everyone hope folks have heard that little rhyme, probably not, but uh, of ideas, yeah, you know, you're looking at the restaurant menu and you haven't been feeling great. It's not like you eat wild salmon or you get pasta with anchovies. Or sardines in it that you're going to feel amazing, but sometimes that happens. happened to me yesterday. I had a really, really emotional day, really challenging, good but challenging clinical day, and was hungry. And we got to this amazing uh, Saluna Cafe here. It's like amazing, like plant based goodness, lots of falafel and salads, just all my favorite stuff. And I mean, I just remember sitting with a plate and I was just so happy. And then afterwards, I was just so happy. It was just so like exactly hit the spot. So sometimes that happens. But what we're really looking for is that over time, your brain's better nourished, your inflammatory pathways are better regulated, which is what you get through feeding your microbiome, lots of plants and lots of fermented foods. You've got a brain filled with lots of omega-3 fats from the little fishies and that you're avoiding all the processed foods. So, you know, all the studies are also kind of clear. It's great to talk about the accolades, you know, accolades of all these natural foods. One of the, you know, big drivers of people beating depression with food is people getting off of highly processed foods. So, you know, if you're not processing it yourself, i.e. chopping it up and sauteing it or oven roasting it or grilling it or something like that, you're taking it out of a package, you want to hit pause, right? That's processed food. And so even simple things, I I got processed foods in my kitchen. It's called a loaf of bread. You know, you can get really high quality, right? A very, very fiber-rich bread or, you know, I could buy the croissants again. I don't know. I buy the croissants every now and then. I like your croissant, but I want to try and mix that up and really be aware. You know, that's one of the ways processed foods is in my house and yeah, commercial okay. baked goods. Actually, people eat the most commercial baked goods, the muffins and croissants have a value. It's like a 60 to 70% increased relative risk of depression, you know. Do I cut them all out of my house? No, but something to pay attention to and think about. And, you know, as we've been talking about, kind of makes some sense.
1: Absolutely. I know I need to let you go. I got one last question for you. But before that, I just want to let everyone know links to the book, links to the antidepressant food scale, all of the stuff that was discussed on this episode will be in the show notes. Dr. Drew, do you have anything that we should let people know about before I ask you one last question?
0: Well, I want everybody to know about my encouragement. Matt's taking me on a taking us on a wild ride of psychotherapy and asking some questions that maybe I wasn't expecting. So I hope everybody hears my encouragement in this more than anything that I've gotten. I've really been privileged as a psychiatrist to sit with gosh at this point with thousands of people and families. And really I get to meet people at their worst often, right? When mm-hmm. they really are on the edge of losing their mind or even have lost some part of it. And then I see people get it back. And so if you're in any spot, with your mental health and you're struggling with your hope, I hope you hear a very hopeful message from me. Some concrete stuff like more olive oil in your house and snacking on nuts and eating more dark chocolate. But I hope just in general, some big dose of empathy that it can be a tough journey, but also I've gotten to see a lot of journeys. And with taking care of our mental health and mental fitness, they tend to go well. So please put in the effort. I think that, uh, oh, I mentioned we got this new course Healing the Modern Brain. I remember we've been working on that for, gosh, almost a year now. It's sort of the biggest, most produced uh, piece of content we've, we've put together. So if folks would check that out. And then and again, we've got a lot of free PDFs on our site, just trying to give people some you know, inspiration, resources, recipes. So those would be... Uh, a few of the things I'd mentioned. What's this? You got a zinger of a last question here, man? Last
1: question. Absolutely. If Dr. Drew accomplishes all he wants to accomplish, hits success, success grows, you always accomplish it. You speak on more stages. You write more books. You do everything you want to do. You live to whatever year you want to live to, but you could only be remembered for one piece of advice. What would that advice be?
0: Oh, love deeper.
1: (sighs) Love Deeper. I love that. Where
0: does that come from? Just came from right now, man. No one's ever asked me that. (laughs) I would just think that all of my, you know, love is by far the most powerful antidepressant that I've seen. Being loved, giving love, caring for each other, being connected. That that in my opinion is what the human brain was made to do. I think we all worked on that. Everybody worked on it. You know, if you have good connections, how can you improve them? How can you pass something on, we were like frenzied about that. Like we're frenzied about so many of our other goals, right? How badly we want to, I don't know, achieve wealth or attention or, you know, something, material thing. I don't know. I just think first, yeah, I would think that, you know, you asked me what what, uh, the kind of, goals are what success looks like. And I think my answer revolved around something about being in that creative expansive state and being in a state of, of giving and receiving love. Right. So I guess that's where that comes from. My notion love of love deeper. This. I love that. 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 That's a mic drop right there. I
1: appreciate Dr. Drew. First and foremost, I appreciate everything today. If I didn't have to let you run, I would keep this going, but I want to respect your time here. I'm down to a minute. So I just want to express gratitude and say, thank you for all
0: of your wisdom, experiences, vulnerability, transparency, all of it. Thank you so much. No, Matt, thanks so much for having a great conversation. Everybody's stuck with us. Thank you so much for letting me uh, be in your life for a little bit and and share some of these thoughts. It's such a, you know, it's a real honor when people ask about your mind like this. So I feel really uh, humbled by the whole thing in some way right now, but thanks for that, Matt. And look, you, you keep decoding success for us. You know, I really appreciate your effort to kind of break it down and maybe make things that to some people think it's, I don't know, some sort of, you know, special thing or special gene that it's just, you know, it's something that happens. I grew up in like the poorest mm. county in rural Indiana and have been through all kinds of strange things, many of which aren't public at all. And, and you know, you keep chipping away at it, working hard and, and caring about people and you get to wonderful places. And so I wish everybody luck in that. And Matt, I wish you lots of luck in that. Maybe thank I'll get you. to see you in it. New York one of these days. Hopefully so. Hopefully so. Dr. Drew, thank you again.
1: You've just tuned into episode number 251 right here on the Decoding Success podcast featuring our friend Dr. Drew Ramsey. Before diving into anything, I'm going to urge you once more to make sure that you're sharing this with the people in your life, not because we need the entire world to listen to Decoding Success like we're some egotistical maniacs. No, that's not the case. We want to make an impact. There are people in your life that experience depression, that experience anxiety, that need to hear two men have this type of conversation to know that they're safe and that they're able to open up. We want to make an impact more than anything. That is why we set out with this show. This is why we do what we do here. You have the power to be that light, to be a beacon of light in someone's life simply by sharing this, whether it be on social, whether it be on a text message, whether it be word of mouth. We're just urging you to do the good deed today to share this with the people in your life. Now, with that all being said, you can connect with Dr. Drew in the show notes of this episode. You'll find socials, where you can get his books, websites, all of that good stuff as always. Until next week, everyone, Be blessed. Peace.